Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. And this whole last half of this chapter is really dealing with God's promises. Can you trust God's promises for your life? Can you trust God's word? And this is what the writer is trying to get across to his uh, Hebrew believers who are reading this letter that he's written to them. I happen to believe it's Paul, by the way, but it's up to debate. It's not, it doesn't say the letter of Paul to the Hebrews, but that's my own personal opinion. But that's not worth anything. So anyways, um, so Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to back up a couple verses to verse 11 uh, and then Pick it up from there. So verse 11, the writer is saying, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And we talked about that last week. Don't become sluggish. And that word means to be dull or lazy and not pressing on in your faith. And last week, the, the, the really the application for you and I last week, and of course it applies this week as well, is don't ignore God's word or grow indifferent to it. These Hebrew believers, they started out just like you and I start out when we, when we start our walk with the Lord. Man, we're on fire. We love God's word. God's speaking to us. But over time, if we don't obey God's word, it can become dull. It can become kind of boring because it's like God's not giving me anything fresh. Well, yeah, because you haven't obeyed him in the first place. He's not going to keep giving you more and more until you start obeying those things that he's told you to do. And so over time, we can become dull. We can become sluggish, hard of hearing. And this is what was happening to the Hebrews. They didn't start out that way, but if they weren't diligent, and if you and I are not diligent, we can become sluggish. And so he says, instead of don't become sluggish, but he says, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And the example he's going to give us is the example of Abraham, someone who through faith and patience inherited God's promises to him. It's a lesson for you and I. It's an example for you and I. So the first thing that we would probably ask is, well, what were the promises that God made to Abraham? It's interesting because, you know, Abraham was 75 years old. That's, that's pretty old. I remember when I was young, and I looked at people that were in there. My grandfather, I remember when he was in his... He died, I think, 72 years old or so. I remember thinking, man, he's such an old man. Well, now that doesn't seem that old to me. It's like, that's he died relatively young. But anyways, Abraham was 75 years old. He was married, but he had no children. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God made a promise to Abraham. God said, I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 75-year-old, no kids. This is the promise. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Then in verse 7 of chapter 12, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram, which is Abraham, God changed his name, and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. To your descendants. Wait a minute, I don't have any children. And yet God says, hey, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to bless you. And I'm also going to, your descendants are going to inherit this land. Well, then in Genesis 
chapter 15, God reiterates his promise to bless Abraham. And Abraham, he's hearing God speaking to him, and he says this, he goes, God, I'm paraphrasing obviously, I have no descendants. The only heir, the only person that could possibly you know, inherit anything from me is my servant Eliezer of Damascus. And God said, Abraham, one's going to come from your own body. He'll be your heir. And in chapter 15, and it's a famous verse, and it says, and he, was speaking of Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. That was when he was 75 years old. Well, 10 years pass. No promise. No children. Well, the promise was there, but no children. And, uh, you know, Sarah's pretty anxiously. They probably decorated the tent, you know, because I think they were living in tents at the time. You know, they got the tent all decorated with Winnie the Pooh stuff, and it's all set up for a baby. You know, they got the latest in, in the colors and everything like that, and they're, they're anxious. And uh, 10 years have passed, no baby. And so Sarah, well, she grows a little impatient. She's been waiting for quite a while. And so she comes up with a plan. And Abraham, he's not innocent here. He's like, hey, that sounds like a pretty good idea. And so Abraham is going to father, this is the plan. Abraham is going to father a son through Sarah's maid, who's Hagar the Egyptian. And uh, the son, you know, you rationalize this, okay? The son's going to be from Abraham's own body. It's going to be his son, biological son, uh, but it'll be through his wife's maid, Hagar. You know, I mean, God said, hey, this heir is going to be of your own flesh, you know, from your own body. So here, we'll make it happen. We'll kind of help God in the process. Uh, But it's not going to be through Sarah. And so Ishmael is born when Abraham is 86 years old. But God tells Abraham he's not the son of the promise. He's a son born out of the work of the flesh, as Paul describes it in Galatians. And so 13 more years pass, and there's still not a baby. And God appears to Abraham and announces that this same time next year, Abraham's going to have a son by Sarah, his wife. And by the way, Sarah is 98 years old, excuse me, 89 years old at this time. So she's not a young spring chick at this time either. Um, A year passes, Sarah turns 90, Abraham turns 100 years old, and lo and behold, they have a son named Isaac. Just as God had promised, but it took 25 years from the time he made the promise to the fulfillment of the promise. I don't know about you, are you waiting for a promise of God and you're like, man, it's been two days, He he hasn't come through yet, or it's been a week, or it's been a year. Abraham waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise. But God was faithful. And so the example for us, we're not to become sluggish in our lives in relation to God and his word. Instead, we're to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end and imitate the faith and patience of Abraham. Now, if you've studied, if you've read about Abraham in in the book of Genesis, you might say, well, wait a second. You know, Abraham was not always a very perfect example of faith, was he? After all, before they had children, twice Abraham feared for his life. He went down to Egypt one time. Uh, He feared for his life, and he told Sarah, his wife, to pretend 
that she was his sister because she said, man, Pharaoh, you're, you're a really good looking lady. You know, I don't know. She was in her seventies, whatever, but she was a really good looking lady. And, and, and Abraham said, you know, I'm afraid Pharaoh's going to, you know, kill me and take you and put you in his harem. Also the king of Abimelech, or Abimelech which is a title of a king. Uh, twice it happened. That doesn't sound like he's very, you know, believing in God's promises. That sounds like somebody who's kind of weak in faith. We're to, exa- we're to follow that example. After God promised to give Abraham an heir who would come from his own body, like I said earlier, Abraham decided to help God fulfill his promise by fathering Ishmael. Have you ever done that in your own life? You know, it's like, you know, I think I'm going to help God along with this. I'm going to do something to kind of make things happen. It's always a mistake. You know, the whole Middle East is kind of uh, bearing the brunt of that mistake even down to this age. I mean, the, the, the children of, of Ishmael are at enmity with the children of, of uh, Isaac. It's, it's all the way down to this generation. Are these the examples we're to imitate? Well, you know, Abraham, like you and like me, he's a work of faith in progress. He didn't start out as just a staunch, you know, I'm a faithful. It was a work that God was doing in his life just like he does in each one of our lives. This is what we're to imitate. Abraham believed God and God's word. Listen, Abraham, or God gave Abraham a promise uh, of descendants when he was 75. God didn't fulfill his promise until um, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Abraham learned and he grew in faith and in patience and he never doubted God, even though he thought he could accomplish God's will by doing his part to help fulfill it via Ishmael. He still never doubted God's word. In fact, Paul in Romans 4 talks about it. Verse 19, he says, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since it was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore, <clears throat> excuse me, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. But listen, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of Abraham's faith story. After Isaac was born, and Isaac was Abraham and Sarah's one and only son, after Isaac was born, God tells Abraham to take that son, that, that, that promised son, and go sacrifice him at a place that God would show him. Can you imagine that? God, you're going to make a nation out of my son. I've got, I finally got a descendant. Your word's coming true. And now God says, yeah, and I want you to take that son and offer it to me. How many of us fathers would be able to do that? Or mothers? Well, Abraham believed God's word that he would bless and multiply his descendants. And get this. The next morning, he gets up early. And in obedience, he takes Isaac. He takes some wood. He takes his knife, he takes some rope, and he takes some servants, and he heads out in the direction that God told him to go. And for three days, he's traveling, knowing that he's going to obey God. In three days, they arrive at the foot of Mount Moriah, which is at present-day Jerusalem. And Abraham tells the servants to stay with the animals while he and Isaac ascend Mount Moriah alone. And you guys, I'm sure you know the story, right? On their way up the mountain, Isaac's like looking around. 
He goes, hey, hey, dad, I've got a question for you. What, what's up, son? Well, we got wood. <laughs> we got some fire because I had, you know, they carried a little torch with them. Where's the animal? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And there's those famous words that Abraham says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Very interesting when you look at the Hebrew. Basically, God is saying God's going to provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. A lot of meaning behind there. Well, just as Abraham is about to slay his one and only son, God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your, your son, your only son, from me. I'm going to kind of jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 11, even though we'll talk about it when we get there. But in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer talks about that in verse 17. He says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Listen. Abraham obeyed God. He set out three days' journey knowing that he was going to obey God, knowing that he was going to kill Isaac. I mean, God said, kill Isaac. He's going to go sacrifice him. To to Abraham, for three days, Isaac was already marked for death. In his mind, my son's dead because when we get there, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to sacrifice him. And yet Abraham believed God, and he believed God's promises And he had received the promise when Isaac was born, but he trusted God enough to obey him. And and this is one of the most tremendous stories of a test of faith that anyone could have to go through. I don't think any one of us has ever gone through something quite as severe as this. And yet he believed, in spite of the odds, God's able to fulfill his promise. Wow. He even believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. I mean, I don't know how God's going to accomplish this. My son's going to die in three days. But God made his promise, and I believe him. He's probably going to raise Isaac from the dead. That's what Abraham, that's what the Bible says. That's what Abraham was thinking in his head. And he received Isaac back from the dead in a figurative sense. That's the kind of faith that says, man, God's spoken it. I believe it. I don't see how he's going to go do it, but man, I, I just trust him even if the circumstances look contrary. Well, let's go back to our text. Verse 13. So the writer says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. You know, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, He told his disciples, he tells you and I as Christians, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if you make a promise, just keep it. If you make a commitment, follow through. Don't let people think that, well, I I really don't know if they're going to follow. I mean, they said yeah, but I don't know. 
We need to be people whose words can be counted on. But that's not our culture, is it? Man's word alone is not enough in our culture. And so what do people do? When they make a promise, they swear by something greater than themselves. You've probably done it. I know I've done it. We've probably heard it over and over again. I swear on a stack of Bibles. Maybe you don't say that, but people say that, right? I swear on a stack of Bibles. Or I swear on my mother's grave. Or Scout's Honor. I I wasn't a Boy Scout, so whatever. Scout's Honor. Or as God is my witness, right? Something greater than themselves, they say, because believe me, and believe me because of this. Don't believe me because of my word, but believe me because of this. Scout's honor, God, as God is my witness. Well, who's greater than God? Who can God make an oath of greater than, you know? Uh, he's not going to say, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Why? Well, because that's basically his recorded word anyways. He's not going to say, I swear on my mother's grave. God can't do that either. Uh, does a Boy Scout somehow have more honor and fidelity than God? The Bible says he cannot lie and he does not lie. Scout's honor doesn't mean anything to God. So God says something to the effect of, it's something to the effect of as God is my witness. He says, as I am my witness. And he says it here, and it's in Hebrew, in a Hebrew you know, idiom basically. But surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. Basically it says, as I am my own witness, I'm going to do this. That's God's promise. You know, God didn't need to give an oath. I mean, after all, his word alone is good. Why did God give an oath then with his promise? The reason why is just because of mankind. That's the only reason. His word alone was good enough. But because he came down to your and my level of understanding, he comes down to us where we're at. It says in verse 17, he was determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. He did it for you and I. He did it for those Hebrew Christians that that this writer is writing to. He wanted to show beyond doubt to the heirs of his promise the unchangeableness of his will. That's what it means, the unchangeableness of his will. Um, You know, God doesn't make promises as we do for us. You know, we make a promise, and then, man, circumstances change. And then it's like, oh, man, yeah, I, I made that promise, but, you know, things have changed. I can't keep the promise. How many of us have done that before? We've all done that. We've made a promise, and then we, we didn't realize, we didn't, didn't count on this other factor. Now this factor kind of changed things. It's like, no, I, I can't possibly fulfill that promise. And so we end up breaking our promise. Or... We change our minds, and we just simply won't keep that promise. Yeah, things have changed. I just, I'm not going to keep that promise. That's how we make promises. But God, God's sovereign, man. He controls circumstances, so, man, nothing can prevent God from keeping his promise. There's no circumstance that God can say, well, I didn't count on that. There's nothing that God can say that's going to change the circumstances where he can't keep his promise. And God doesn't change his mind, so he won't break his promise. Now, some of you might argue with me on that last statement that God can't change or God doesn't change his mind. Because, you know, if you go through the Bible, if you go through the Old Testament, this is what I did last last yesterday actually. I pulled out my concordance and I started doing a word search. And I did, because I'm like, well, I'm going to say that God never breaks his promises, but 
I better make sure that that's true before I say it to you guys. So I'm going I'm to do a little word search. So I did a word search on a word that, I, that I've heard many times, and probably you have too, that to me describes someone changing their mind, and that's the word relent. Because if you go through the Old Testament, there's a lot of times when God relented. That sounds like he's changed his mind, doesn't it? It sounds like it to me. The Old Testament has several places where God states something, and then he relents from something that he declared. So the question that we have is, does God change his mind? Let's look at a few of them. I didn't get all of them, but let's look at a few of them. There was the gold calf incident. Remember in Exodus? The children of Israel, they're out in the wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain to get receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and he's gone for quite a while. And the people are like, man, what happened to that guy? I wonder if he died on the mountain and stuff. And so they convince Moses' brother to, to, to melt down this golden image, and, and, or actually to melt down their gold earrings and their jewelry and make a golden calf. You guys know that story, right? It was sin. They, they, it was idolatry. God was going to wipe out those Jewish people. God was going to wipe out the Hebrews. But in Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, it says, So the Lord relented from the harm he said he would do to his people. He changed his mind. Sounds like it. When David sinned against the Lord, David, man man after God's own heart, and yet he was a a man, (laughs) and he was a sinner, and he sinned. David numbered the people. God said, don't number the people, David. It's gonna, it's gonna make your head swell. You're gonna start counting on. You're gonna start relying on your own strength and your own. Don't do it. Don't count the people. Just, just look to me. Well, David didn't do that. He sinned. He numbered the people. And in Second Samuel, and God gave him a three different punishments to choose from. And the punishment that that David basically accepted or, or didn't accept it that he took was that the angel of death was gonna strike some of the children of Israel, some of the Israelites. And in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24, verse 16, the angel shows up and it says, And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. God changed his mind. In the days of Hezekiah, when the nation of Judah had turned to other gods, Jeremiah describes it in Jeremiah twenty six nineteen. It says, The Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. In Psalm 106, Psalm 106 records the history of the sins of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And in Psalm 106, verse 45, and it says, And for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented, and get this, according to the multitude of his mercies. All these verses, by the way, are verses about God in the Old Testament. Because a lot of times people say, you know, it seems like there's two different gods in the Bible. There's the God of the Old Testament that tells the Israelites, wipe out the, the Canaanites. And there's all this blood and sacrifice and all this stuff, all the death and dying. And that, that's an evil God. Like, you know, that, that's how people that aren't Christians kind of, you know, they have this view of God. But then you have Jesus. He says to turn the other cheek when someone, you know, he's a loving, you know. And to them, it seems like there's two different people that you're talking about. This is the God of the Old Testament who relents from causing harm. Because God is a love. God is a God of love. So does God ever change his mind? Well, if he can call it changing his mind, the only time he does it is in man's favor when God has compassion and pities those deserving punishment and when he extends mercy. That's the only time that you can find in the Bible where God changes his mind. God never 
and I'm going to say this ultimately, God never makes a promise to bless someone and then says, you know what? Things have changed. I'm going to curse you instead. God never does that. There's no record of it in the Bible. If you find it, come and meet me. You can show me. I didn't find it. God never changed, makes a promise to bless someone and then changes his mind. I hope that encourages you this morning. So in verse 17, it says, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of uh, promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. By two immutable things, or unchangeable things, God confirmed his promise. What are those two things? God's promise and his oath. And he says it's impossible for God to lie. Why? Because it's against his nature. And the reason the writer is saying these things, listen, all the stuff that we're talking about right now, it's not a theological, I mean, it is theological, but it's not for the purpose of just having a theological discussion so we can understand that God doesn't, you know, does God make promises or break promises, you know. It's not a theological discussion. It's not an academic exercise that we're going through this morning. The reason that we've gone through this morning is that as a result of God's promise, as a result of his oath, and as a result of his nature, you and I might have strong consolation. Man, you can trust God. You can trust God's words. Who We, you and I, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now, if you were a Hebrew and you had just heard me say that, you know, you and I who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, a bell would be ringing in your ear right now. Because you went to synagogue faithfully. Your dad, mom and dad dragged you to synagogue every day and, or every week, and you learned all about the Levitical law of the cities of refuge. So you, you're like, well, that sounds like the cities of refuge he's talking about. What is the Levitical law about the cities of refuge? If you've never read about it, it's in Numbers 35. You don't have to turn there because we're not going to read it, but it's in Numbers 35. God told the children of Israel to set apart six cities throughout the land of Israel. They were called the cities of refuge. And uh, they were spread out in the land such that they were all within one day's journey. You, you never had to go, if you were heading to a cities of refuge from wherever you lived in Israel, you never had to spend the night somewhere and then get it there the next day. It was within one day's walk throughout them. So they were spread out throughout the land, one day's distance. What was their purpose? Well, you know, they didn't have cops in those days. You know, they didn't have magistrates or whatever. And so this is a new nation that God is developing there in the land of, of, of what used to be Canaan. Now it's Israel. And so God set up this law, the cities of refuge. It, you know, if you murdered someone in those days, you intentionally killed someone, you got angry with them, you, and you murdered them, the next of kin was known as the avenger of blood. And if you murdered someone intentionally, the avenger of blood was allowed to slay you. He was allowed. There was, he had every right to go and to take matters into his own hands and, and to slay you. But not all people die intentionally. Sometimes, you know, you could be, maybe you, you and your buddy are out there chopping down trees in the forest and your axe handle falls, flies off and hits the guy in the head and kills him. Well, he's dead, but you didn't murder him. It was an accident. 
Well, you know, sometimes the avenger of blood could still be pretty angry, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, you killed my dad, or, you know, you, I, there's a joke that, oh, never mind, I won't tell you the joke. <laughs> now, now I better tell you the joke. My dad used to always say it, and it was a, it's about the three-legged dog that walks into a bar. The bartender says, can I help you? And he goes, I'm looking for the man who shot my paw. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Pretty bad, I know. <laughs> so if someone unintentionally, accidentally killed someone, they could flee to these cities of refuge. And once they arrived at the cities of refuge, the, the people of the city would allow them into the city. They would be safe from the avenger of blood. The manslayer, because you weren't a murderer, you slayed someone, but it was an accident. The manslayer and the avenger of blood would then appear before the city elders and they would hear the they would hear the evidence and they would judge between the two parties involved. Now, if it was determined not to be murder that was committed, it was an accident, you didn't mean to, you know, it just happened, the manslayer would be safe inside the city of refuge. The avenger of blood was not allowed to kill him. You'd be safe in the city. But, and get this, the manslayer had to stay inside the city of refuge. If he said, you know what, man, I'm tired of sitting in the city. I, I want to go back to my house. And he wandered outside of the city. And if the avenger of blood just happened to see him, the avenger of blood could kill him. And there would be, the blood would be upon his own head because he wandered out of the city. He got what he deserved, basically. He took, he, he took a chance and, and he lost, basically. The manslayer had to stay inside the city until the death of the high priest, and then he was allowed to return to his home. It, it, this was really a way to maintain law and order and justice in the new nation of Israel, and it was also a way to keep the avenger of blood from extracting revenge on an innocent person. It was, it was to, it just to keep things uh, you know, in order there and to have justice. But that's also a picture of Jesus Christ, because he's your and my refuge. You and I, we flee to Jesus, man. The avenger of blood, he's after us because we've all sinned. We've all, we've all, you know, we're guilty, but man, we run to the city of refuge and there we have, we're safe from the avenger of blood. But you know, we have to abide in Christ. The Bible says to abide in Christ in the gospel of John. We wander off, man. We're fair game. We have to abide in Christ. Um, it's interesting, even the names of the cities of, of refuge reflect your and my relationship with Jesus. I'm just going to name them real quick. Shechem was one of them. And Shechem can either, name, either mean back or shoulder. And it, when, I, when I read that, I thought, whoa, Isaiah 50, verse 6. It's a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. As I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. God gave his back for you and I. He was, he was whipped to a bloody pulp for your and my sins. Kadesh. Kadesh means holy place. And Jesus is our holiness. Bezer was another one, and it means remote fortress. And Jesus, man, he's our mighty fortress. He's our high tower that we can flee to for safety. Ramoth, the word means heights. And God, just as that song that Luke was singing earlier, God has exalted Christ Jesus, right? His name is above all other names. There's no other name under heaven by which a man may be saved. Hebron, it means association. It can also mean fellowship. And you and I, man, we're called into the fellowship of Christ's suffering and resurrection. This is a fellowship right here that we're part of. Golan, they're rejoicing. 
In Jesus Christ, He is our joy because in Him, you and I are justified. Now, if you don't know what justified means, think of it this way. It's just as if I've never sinned. That's what justification is. God looks at you and He sees innocence. Not because we're innocent, because we're not. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ who's washed away our sins. And so we've been justified. And I don't know about you, but that makes me pretty joyful. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, that you're not going to hold my sins against me. In fact, the Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far as he's removed our sins from us. Have you ever traveled west and tried to reach east? You know, you can't do it. You keep driving east, and you're going to drive east forever. You go west, you're going to drive west. East and west never meet, except maybe in football games. But they never meet other than that. North and south, you go north, eventually you're going to be going south. East and west. What a beautiful picture. Our, sin, we're never going to, our sins are never going to catch up with us if we brought them to Jesus Christ, if we confess them. And he's, he's removed them as far as east is from west. Beautiful picture. So the example of Abraham is to remind us that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. What is the hope set before us? It's God's promise of eternal life. That's what the hope is. Hebrews 6.19, he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. And now there's another picture. Now we have this picture of a ship on the ocean. And God's promise in His Word is the anchor of your and my soul. Excuse me, soul. Um, What's the sea? The sea is life. And sometimes, sometimes life is calm, like an ocean is calm. I, I, I remember one time I went with a buddy. We went he, back when I lived in California. We went on. Uh, he had a boat. It's always better to have a friend that has a boat than own your own boat. It's just cheaper that way. It worked out. But he had a boat, and uh, he and I would go fishing. And, and one day he said, "Hey, you want to go out in the San Francisco Bay and do some shark fishing?" I'm like, "Yeah, that's great." We went out there, and I tell you, it was like glass. I mean, it was there was no breeze, no. It was just it was great, and we caught a ton of shark that day. About a week later, we decided we were going to do it again. We went out there, and the water was so rough. We we started launching the boat at, at a dock there, and the, the the you could actually see the the you could see the ground underneath. I mean, that's the water was that rough. It's like whoa, <laughs> we're not going to go out there. It's too rough. Life's like that sometimes. Sometimes we go through life and life is smooth. Things are going good. No ripples. It's just fine. No. But how often do we, you and I face some storms? Man, it gets, clouds get dark. You can't even see where you're heading. You know, I mean, things are, the winds are blowing you this way and that way. What do you do when you're in a situation like that? You throw out your anchor, man, to keep you steady. So you're not going to run aground on the rocks. So you're not going to sink. That's what God's Word is for you and I. It's an anchor of our soul. God's Word is sure and steadfast because God is sure and steadfast, just like a ship's anchor. And that anchor, that holds us until the storms of life are past. Now, I don't know about you, but today, in this day and age, you know, you guys just heard about that stuff that happened in Paris, right? The, the terrorists that went in there. You know that they're saying that there's, a, that there's some sleeper cells throughout the United States that this could the very same thing that happened over there could happen here and, and I believe it you and I could be sitting in a in in a Starbucks or or a caribou coffee or something somewhere just having a nice time fellowshipping maybe you're, maybe you're doing a bible study with a friend or something like that 
and some person comes in and starts shooting up the place. That's a real, that's a reality now in our life. When I was a kid, those kind of things like, huh, that just didn't, didn't compute. It's a reality now for us. They're also saying, I was reading uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. You know, he used to be the premier in Perestroika. He's saying that, that Russia, that we're entering into a Cold War again. And he says it's a very dangerous time now that Russia could launch nuclear weapons. I'm like, whoa, that seems something out of the 50s. No, it's, it's a reality. It could happen. Life is very unsure right now. We're heading into some very stormy times. And for you and I, those storms, and it's not just that. There's, there's other winds of doctrine that come through and want to blow you sideways and take you this way and off that way. There's so many things that can run us aground in our faith, that can sink us. And so you and I, we need to cling on to that anchor, and that anchor is God's Word. I want you to just, if you don't get anything out of today, except for, remember that joke, it's a fun one, but cling. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know what's funny? When I say stuff like that, typically that's what people remember. It's a little illustrations of silly stuff. I want you to remember God's word is an anchor that you can cling to. And it's sure and it's steadfast. You see, these Jewish believers were tempted to let go of their anchor of God's word. Because they were thinking, you know what? I can see the shore over there and I I think I can just make it if I just roll by myself. You know, I think I can do it if I just do it by myself. They were trying to go back to Judaism, where they were trying to go back to where they could earn their own salvation, where they could start feeling like they were saved. You know, they, they were starting to go through getting into caught up in works and legalism. But don't do that. Man, cling to God's promises in his word. Then he gives us another word picture that would have rung a different kind of bell with the Hebrew believers. Because not only is this hope an anchor of the soul, but verse 19 continues. He says, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and this, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Now, right now, alarm bells would be ringing with the Hebrew. You see, the word of God that you and I hold in our hands, it's not just an inanimate book of over 3,000. You know, there are over 3,000 promises in God's word. It's not just a book of promises. It's not just a stories or a system of belief. Through this book, you and I are introduced to the reason for our hope, which is Jesus Christ. That's a whole. This book is an introduction to Jesus. It's a love letter of God introducing us to our bride or to our We're the bride, to to the groom, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So through this book, we're introduced to the reason for our hope, which is Jesus. And this hope, Jesus, enters the presence behind the veil. Now that would have set off alarm bells with the Hebrews because this presence is referring to the Holy of Holies in the temple. And they would have got that. We might just kind of, okay, that's interesting, but they would have got it big time. Why would that have rung alarm bells with Hebrews? Well, because the Holy of Holies was where God met with the children of Israel. And it was such a holy place, it was separated by a veil. And this veil measured 60 by 30 feet. It was 10 inches thick. It was so heavy, a hundred priests would have to move it. That's how heavy, that's how intense this, this veil was. And the priests ministered daily in the holy place in the temple on the other side of the veil. That's where the table of showbread was, where the altar of incense was, and where the lampstand. They, they daily went over there and they ministered to the Lord. But behind that veil, that thick veil, was the holiest of all places. 
That was where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was where the mercy seat was. And it was in that place that God met with the children of Israel. And it was such a holy place, only the high priest could enter. And he could only enter once a year. In that place, your and my hope entered. Hebrews 6 verse 20 says, Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. What is a forerunner? Besides being a Toyota SUV, what is a forerunner? This is the definition. It's one who comes in advance to a place where the rest are to follow. Now that would have been like fire alarms would be going off in a Hebrew's head right now. Why? Because only the high priest could go in that place. It was such a holy place, and only once a year. And then high priest, according to the Levitical law, had to descend from Aaron, who was the first high priest. And Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. And Jesus of Nazareth, he was from the tribe of Judah, which wasn't the high priestly tribe. You know, it's interesting when Jesus, and you guys know this, but when Jesus died on the cross, that, that temple veil, that huge thing that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, it tore in two from top to bottom. And it indicated that through Christ's sacrifice on Mount Moriah, which is the same place where Isaac was offered, by the way, centuries before, where another father sacrificed his one and only son, that Jesus on that hill made a way for you and I to enter God's presence 24 by 7, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a, a, a year. We can boldly go before the throne of grace. That, that, that's something a Jewish would, they would appreciate that. You mean I, I can actually go there anytime on my own? Well, it's because our high priest has gone before us, Jesus Christ. He was the forerunner who comes in advance, and you and I are the rest who are allowed to follow Jesus was not of the order of, of Aaron, which was the, the Levitical uh, high priestly tribe, but he's after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we studied this earlier, but the writer said earlier that he wanted to explain what he was referring to by the order of Melchizedek. But he says, but you Hebrews, you become dull of hearing God's word. You, it, it just, it wouldn't, it, you wouldn't fathom it. You wouldn't be able to comprehend it because you've grown dull in your reading. You've grown dull and you've ignored God's word that much in your life. that It's just, you're not going to get it. But now in chapter 7, he's going to take that fascinating, and it is a fascinating story of an obscure priest who's only mentioned twice in the Bible besides here in Hebrews. Very Just briefly, he's mentioned, fleeting in the Bible. And, uh, and he's going to expound on that. We're not going to expound on that today. Um, we'll get that next week. But... Um, you know, if anything, like I said, what, I, what I'd like...